Chapter Three, Part One of the Talisman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Talisman by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Three, Part One. The warriors arose from their place of brief rest and simple refreshment and courteously aided each other while they carefully replaced and adjusted the harness from which they had relieved, for the time, their trusty steeds. Each seemed familiar with an employment which, at that time, was a part of necessary, and, indeed, of indispensable duty. Each also seemed to possess, as far as the difference betwixt the animal and rational species admitted, the confidence and attention of the horse, which was the constant companion of his travels and his warfare. With the Saracen, this familiar intimacy was a part of his early habits, for, in the tents of the eastern military tribes, the horse of the soldier ranks next to, and almost equal in importance with, his wife and his family. And with the European warrior, circumstances, and indeed necessity, rendered his war-horse scarcely less than his brother-in-arms. The steeds, therefore, suffered themselves quietly to be taken from their food and liberty, and neighed and sniffed fondly around their masters, while they were adjusting their accoutrements for further travel and additional toil. And each warrior, as he prosecuted his own task, or assisted with courtesy his companion, looked with observant curiosity at the equipments of his fellow-traveller, and noted particularly what struck him as peculiar in the fashion in which he arranged his riding accoutrements. Ere they remounted to resume their journey, the Christian knight again moistened his lips, and dipped his hands in the living fountain, and said to his pagan associate of the journey, I would I knew the name of this delicious fountain, that I might hold in it my grateful remembrance, for never did water slake more deliciously a more oppressive thirst than I have this day experienced. It is called in the Arabic language, answered the Saracen, by a name which signifies the diamond of the desert. And well it is so named, replied the Christian. My native valley hath a thousand springs, but not to one of them shall I attach hereafter such precious recollection as to this solitary fount, which bestows its liquid treasures where they are not only delightful, but nearly indispensable. You say truth, said the Saracen. "'for the curse is still on yonder sea of death, "'and neither man nor beast drinks of its waves, "'nor of the river which feeds without filling it, "'until this inhospitable desert be passed.' "'They mounted and pursued their journey across the sandy waste. "'The ardour of noon was now past, "'and a light breeze somewhat alleviated the terrors of the desert, "'though not without bearing on its wings an impalpable dust, "'which the Saracen little heeded.' though his heavily armoured companion felt it as such an annoyance, that he hung his iron cask at his saddle-bow, and substituted the light riding-cap, termed in the language of the time a mortier, from its resemblance in shape to an ordinary mortar. They rode together for some time in silence, the Saracen performing the part of director and guide of the journey, which he did by observing minute marks and bearings in the distant rocks to a ridge of which they were gradually approaching. For a little time he seemed absorbed in the task, 
as a pilot when navigating a vessel through a difficult channel. But they had not proceeded half a league when he seemed secure of his route, and disposed, with even more frankness than was usual to his nation, to enter into conversation. "'You have asked the name,' he said, "'of a mute fountain, which hath the semblance, but not the reality, of a living thing. "'Let me be pardoned to ask the name of the companion with whom I have this day encountered, "'both in danger and repose, and which I cannot fancy unknown even here among the deserts of Palestine?' "'It is not yet worth publishing,' said the Christian. "'Know, however, that among the soldiers of the cross I am called Kenneth.' Kenneth of the Couching Leopard. At home I have other titles, but they would sound harsh in an eastern ear. Brave Saracen, let me ask which of the tribes of Arabia claims your descent, and by what name you are known? Sir Kenneth, said the Moslem, I joy that your name is such as my lips can easily utter. For me, I am no Arab, yet derive my descent from a line neither less wild nor less warlike. No, Sir Knight of the Leopard, the time Sherkov, the lion of the mountain, and that Kurdistan, from which I derive my descent, holds no family more noble than that of Seljuk. I have heard, answered the Christian, that your great Soldan claims his blood from the same source. Thanks to the prophet that hath so far honoured our mountains as descend from their bosom, him whose word is victory, answered the Pinyim. I am but as a worm before the king of Egypt and Syria, and yet in my own land something my name may avail. Stranger, with how many men didst thou come on this warfare? By my faith, said Sir Kenneth, with aid of friends and kinsmen, I was hardly pinched to furnish forth ten well-appointed lances, with maybe some fifty more men, archers and varlets included. Some have deserted my unlucky pennon, some have fallen in battle, several have died of disease, and one trusty armour-bearer, for whose life I am now doing my pilgrimage, lies on the bed of sickness. Christian, said Cherkov, here I have five arrows in my quiver, each feathered from the wing of an eagle. When I sent one of them to my tents, a thousand warriors mounted on horseback. When I send another, an equal force will arise. For the five, I can command five thousand men. And if I send my bow... Ten thousand mounted riders will shake the desert. And with thy fifty followers thou hast come to invade a land in which I am one of the meanest. Now by the rude Saracen, retorted the western warrior, thou shouldest know ere thy vault is thyself that one steel glove can crush a whole handful of hornets. Aye, but first it must enclose them within its grasp, said the Saracen, with a smile which might have endangered their new alliance. "'had he not changed the subject by adding, "'And is bravery so much esteemed among the Christian princes "'that thou, thus void of means and of men, "'canst offer, as thou didst of late, "'to be my protector and security in the camp of thy brethren?' "'No, Saracen,' said the Christian, "'such is thy style that the name of a knight "'and the blood of a gentleman "'entitle him to a place on the same rank "'with the sovereigns, even of the first degree.' in so far as regards all but regal authority and dominion. Were Richard of England himself to wound the honour of a knight as poor as I am, he could not, by the laws of chivalry, deny him the combat. Methinks I should like to look upon so strange a scene, 
said the emir, in which a leathern belt and a pair of spurs put the poorest on a level with the most powerful. You must add free blood and a fearless heart, said the Christian. Then perhaps you will not have spoken untruly of the dignity of knighthood. And mix you as boldly among the females of your chiefs and leaders? asked the Saracen. God forbid, said the knight of the leopard, that the poorest knight in Christendom should not be free, in all honourable service, to devote his hand and sword, the fame of his actions, and the fixed devotion of his heart, to the fairest princess who ever wore coronet on her brow. But a little while since, said the Saracen, and you described love as the highest treasure of the heart. Thine hath undoubtedly been high and nobly bestowed. Stranger, answered the Christian, blushing deeply as he spoke, we tell not rashly where it is we have bestowed our choicest treasures. It is enough for thee to know that, as thou sayest, my love is highly and nobly bestowed, most highly, most nobly. But if thou wouldst hear of love and broken lances, venture thyself, as thou sayest, to the camp of the Crusaders, and thou wilt find excuse for thine ears, and if thou wilt, for thy hands too. The Eastern warrior, rising himself in his stirrups, and shaken aloft his lance, replied, Hardly, I fear, shall I find one with a crossed shoulder, who will exchange with me the cast of the Gerard. I will not promise for that, replied the knight, though there be in the camp some certain Spaniards, who have right good skill in your eastern game of hurling the javelin. Dogs and sons of dogs, ejaculated the Saracen. What have these Spaniards to do, to come hither to combat the true believers, who, in their own land, are their lords and taskmasters? With them I would mix in no warlike pastime. Let not the knights of Leon or Asturias hear you speak thus of them, said the knight of the leopard. But, added he, smiling at the recollection of the morning's combat, if, instead of a reed, you are inclined to stand the cast of a battle-axe, there are enough of western warriors who would gratify your longing. By the beard of my father, sir, with an approach to laughter, the game is too rough for mere sport. I will never shun them in battle, but my head, pressing his hand to his brow, will not for a while permit me to seek them in sport. I would that you saw the axe of King Richard, answered the western warrior, to which that which hangs at my saddle-bow weighs but as a feather. We hear much of that island sovereign, said the Saracen. Art thou one of his subjects? One of his followers I am, for this expedition, answered the knight, and honoured in the service, but not born his subject, although a native in the island in which he reigns. How mean you? said the eastern soldier. Have you then two kings in one poor island? As thou sayest, said the Scot, for such was Sir Kenneth by birth. It is even so, and yet, although the inhabitants of the two extremities of that island are engaged in frequent war, the country can, as thou seest, furnish forth such a body of men-at-arms as may go far to shake the unholy hold which your master hath laid on the cities of Zion. By the beard of Saladin Nazarene, but that it is a thoughtless and boyish folly, 
I could laugh at the simplicity of your great sultan, who comes hither to make conquests of desert and rocks, and dispute the possession of them which those who have tenfold numbers at command, while he leaves a part of his narrow islet, in which he was born a sovereign, to the dominion of another sceptre than his. Surely, Sir Kenneth, you and the other good men of your country, should have submitted yourselves to the dominion of this King Richard, ere you left your native land, divided against itself, to set forth in this expedition? Hasty and fierce was Kenneth's answer. No, by the bright light of heaven, if the King of England had not set forth to the crusade till he was sovereign of Scotland, the crescent might for me, and all true-hearted Scots, glimmer for ever on the walls of Zion. Thus far he had proceeded, when, recollecting himself, he muttered, Mea culpa, mea culpa, what have I, a soldier of the cross, to do with recollection of war betwixt Christian nations? The rapid expression of feeling, corrected by the dictates of duty, did not escape the Moslem, who, if he did not entirely understand all which it conveyed, saw enough to convince him with the assurance that Christians, as well as Moslemah, had private feelings of personal pique, and national quarrels which were not entirely reconcilable. But the Saracens were a race, polished, perhaps, to the utmost extent which their religion permitted, and particularly capable of entertaining high ideas of courtesy and politeness. And such sentiments prevented his taking any notice of the inconsistency of Sir Kenneth's feelings in the opposite character of a Scot and a Crusader. Meanwhile, as they advanced, the scene began to change around them. They were now turning to the eastward, and had reached the range of steep and barren hills, which binds in that quarter the naked plain, and varies the surface of the country, without changing its sterile character. Sharp, rocky eminences began to rise around them, and, in a short time, deep declivities and descents, both formidable in height and difficult from the narrowness of the path, offered to the travellers obstacles of a different kind from those with which they had recently contended. Dark caverns and chasms amongst the rocks, those grottoes so often alluded to in the scripture, yawned fearfully on either side as they proceeded, and their Scottish knight was informed by the emir that these were often the refuge of beasts of prey, or of men still more ferocious, who, driven to desperation by the constant war, and the oppression exercised by the soldiery, as well of the cross as of the crescent, had become robbers, and spared neither rank nor religion, neither sex nor age, in their depredations. The Scottish knight listened with indifference to the accounts of ravages committed by wild beasts or wicked men, secure as he felt himself in his own valour and personal strength. But he was struck with mysterious dread when he recollected that he was now in the awful wildness of the forty days' fast, and the scene of the actual personal temptation, wherewith the evil principle was permitted to assail the son of man. He withdrew his attention gradually from the light and worldly conversation of the infidel warrior beside him, and, however acceptable his gay and gallant bravery would have rendered him as a companion elsewhere, Sir Kenneth felt as if, in these wildernesses, the waste and dry place in which the foul spirits were wont to wander when expelled the mortals whose forms they possessed, a barefooted friar would have been a better associate than the gay but unbelieving Pinium. 
these feelings embarrassed him, the rather that the Saracen spirits appeared to rise with the journey, and because the farther he penetrated into the gloomy recesses of the mountains, the lighter became his conversation. And when he found that unanswered, the louder grew his song. Sir Kenneth knew enough of the Eastern languages to be assured that he chanted sonnets of love, containing all the glowing praises of beauty in which the Oriental poets are so fond of luxuriating, and which, therefore, were peculiarly unfit for a serious or devotional strain of thought, the feeling best becoming the wilderness of the temptation. With inconsistency enough, the Saracen also sung lays in praise of wine, the liquid ruby of the Persian poets. And his gaiety at length became so unsuitable to the Christian knight's contrary train of sentiments, as, but for the promise of amity which they had exchanged, would most likely have made Sir Kenneth take measures to change his note. As it was, the crusader felt as if he had by his side some gay, licentious fiend, who endeavoured to ensnare his soul, and endanger his immortal salvation, by inspiring loose thoughts of earthly pleasure, and thus polluting his devotion, at a time when his faith as a Christian, and his vow as a pilgrim, called on him for a serious and penential state of mind. He was thus greatly perplexed, and undecided how to act. And it was in a tone of hasty displeasure that, at length breaking silence, he interrupted the lay of the celebrated Rudpiki, in which he prefers the mole on his mistress's bosom, to all the wealth of Bokhara and Samarkand. Saracen, said the crusader sternly, blinded as thou art, and plunged amidst the errors of a false law, thou shouldest yet comprehend that there are some places more holy than others, and that there are some scenes also in which the evil one hath more than ordinary powers over sinful mortals. I will not tell thee for what awful reasons this place, these rocks, these caverns with their gloomy arches, leading as it were to the central abyss, are held in the especial haunt of Satan and his angels. It is enough that I have been long warned to beware of this place by wise and holy men, to whom the qualities of the unholy region are well known. Wherefore, Saracen, forbear thy foolish and ill-timed levity, and turn thy thoughts to things more suited to the spot, although, alas for thee, thy best prayers are but as blasphemy and sin. The Saracen listened with some surprise, and then replied, with good humour and gaiety, only so far repressed as courtesy required. Good Sir Kenneth, methinks you deal unequally by your companion, or else ceremony is but indifferently taught amongst your western tribes. I took no offence when I saw you gorge hog's flesh and drink wine, and permitted you to enjoy a treat which you called your Christian liberty, only pitying in my heart your full pastimes. Wherefore, then, shouldst thou take scandal, because I cheer, to the best of my power, a gloomy road with a cheerful verse? What saith the poet? Song is like the dews of heaven on the bosom of the desert. It cools the path of the traveller. Friend Saracen, said the Christian, I blame not the love of minstrelsy and of gay science. Albeit we yield unto it even too much room in our thoughts when they should be bent on better things. But prayers and holy psalms are better fitting than lace of love, or of wine-cups, when men walk in this valley of the shadow of death, full of fiends and demons, whom the prayers of holy men have driven forth from the haunts of humanity, to wander amidst scenes as accursed as themselves. 
"'Speak not thus of the Genii, Christian,' answered the Saracen, "'for know thou speakest to one whose line and nation draw their origin "'from the immortal race which your sect fear and blaspheme.' "'I well thought,' answered the Crusader, "'that your blinded race had their descent from the foul fiend, "'without whose aid you would never have been able to maintain "'this blessed land of Palestine against so many valiant soldiers of God.' I speak not thus of thee in particular, Saracen, but generally of thy people and religion. Strange it is to me, however, not that you should have the descent from the evil one, but that you should boast of it. From whom should the bravest boast of descending, save from him that is bravest? said the Saracen. From whom should the proudest trace their lines so well as from the dark spirit, which would rather fall headlong by force than bend the knee by his wills? Eblis may be hated, stranger, but he must be feared. And such as Eblis are his descendants of Kurdistan. Tales of magic and of necromancy were the learning of the period, and Sir Kenneth heard his companion's confession of diabolical descent without any disbelief, and without much wonder, yet not without a secret shudder at finding himself in this fearful place, in the company of one who avouched himself to belong to such a lineage. Naturally insusceptible, however, of fear, he crossed himself, and stoutly demanded of the Saracen an account of the pedigree with which he had boasted. The latter readily complied. No, brave stranger, said he, that when the cruel Zahuk, one of the descendants of Gameschid, held the throne of Persia, he formed a league with the powers of darkness, amidst the secret vaults of Ishtakar, vaults which the hands of the elementary spirits had hewn out of the living rock long before Adam himself had an existence. Here he fed, with daily oblations of human blood, two devouring serpents, which had become, according to the poets, a part of himself, and to sustain whom he levied attacks of daily human sacrifices, till the exhausted patience of his subjects caused some to rise up the scimitar of resistance, like the valiant blacksmith and the victorious Feridown by whom the tyrant was at length defroned, and imprisoned for ever in the dismal caverns of the mountains of Demivand. But, ere the deliverance had taken place, and whilst the power of the bloodthirsty tyrant was at its height, the band of ravening slaves, whom he had sent forth to purvey victims for his daily sacrifice, brought to the vaults of the palace of Ishtakar seven sisters so beautiful that they seemed seven Horus. The seven maidens were the daughters of a sage, who had no treasures save those beauties and his own wisdom. The last was not sufficient to foresee this misfortune. The former seemed ineffectual to prevent it. The elder exceeded not her twentieth year, the youngest had scarce attained her thirteenth, and so like were they to each other that they could not have been distinguished but for the difference of height, in which they gradually rose in easy gradation above each other like the ascent which leads to the gates of paradise. So lovely were these seven sisters when they stood in the darksome vault, disrobed of all clothing save a cymar of white silk, that their charms moved the hearts of those who were not mortal. Thunder muttered, the earth shook, the wall of the vault was rent, and at the chasm entered one dressed like a hunter, with bow and shaft, and followed by six others, his brethren. They were tall men, and, though dark, yet comely to behold. 
but their eyes had more the glare of those of the dead than of the light, which lives under the eyelids of the living. Zeneb said the leader of the band, and as he spoke he took the eldest sister by the hand, and his voice was soft, low, and melancholy. I am Cothrobe, king of the subterranean world, and supreme chief of Ginnistan. I and my brethren are of those who, created out of the pure elementary fire, disdained even at the command of omnipotence, to do homage to a clod of earth because it was called man. Thou mayest have heard of us as cruel, unrelenting, and persecuting. It is false. We are by nature kind and generous, only ventful when insulted, only cruel when affronted. We are true to those who trust us, and we have heard the invocations of thy father, the sage Mithrasp, who wisely worships, not alone the origin of good, but that which is called the source of evil. You and your sisters are on the eve of death, but let each give to us one hair from your fair tresses, in token of fealty, and we will carry you many miles from hence to a place of safety, where you may bid defiance to Zau Hook and his ministers. The fear of instant death, saith the poet, is like the rod of the prophet Hauron, which devoured all other rods when transformed into snakes before the king of Pharaoh. And the daughters of the Persian sage were less apt than others to be afraid of the addresses of the spirit. They gave the tribute which Cothrobe demanded, and in an instant the sisters were transported to an enchanted castle on the mountains of Tagret in Kurdistan, and were never seen again by mortal eye. But in the process of time seven youths, distinguished in the war and in the chase, appeared in the environs of the castle of the demons. They were darker, taller, fiercer, and more resolute than any of the scattered inhabitants of the valleys of Kurdistan, and they took to themselves wives and became fathers of the seven tribes of the Kurdmans, whose valour is known throughout the universe. The Christian knight heard with wonder the wild tale, of which Kurdistan still possesses the traces, and, after a moment's thought, replied, Verily, Sir Knight, you have spoken well. Your genealogy may be dreaded and hated, but it cannot be contemned. Neither do I any longer wonder at your obstinacy in a false faith, since, doubtless, it is part of the fiendish disposition which hath descended from your ancestors, those infernal huntsmen, as you have described them, to love falsehood rather than truth. And I no longer marvel that your spirits become high and exalted, and vent themselves in verse and in tunes, when you approach to the places encumbered by the haunting of evil spirits, which must excite in you that joyous feeling which others experience when approaching the land of their human ancestry. "'By my father's beard, I think thou hast the right,' said the Saracen, rather amused than offended by the freedom with which the Christian had uttered his reflections. For, though the prophet, blessed be his name, hath sown amongst us the seed of a better faith than our ancestors learned in the ghostly halls of Tugret. Yet we are not willing, like other Muslimah, to pass hasty doom on the lofty and powerful elementary spirits from whom we claim our origin. These Jenai, according to our belief and hope, are not altogether reprobate, but are still in the way of probation, and may hereafter be punished or rewarded. Leave we this to the mullahs and the imams. Enough that with us the reverence for these spirits is not altogether effaced by what we have learned from the Koran, 
and that many of us still sing, in memorial of our father's more ancient faith, such verses as these. So saying, he proceeded to chant verses, very ancient in the language and structure, which some have thought derived their source from the worshippers of Ahriman's, the evil principle. Hariman. Dark Hariman, whom Iraq still holds origin of woe and ill, when, bending at thy shrine, we view the world with troubled eye, where see we neath the extended sky an empire marching thine. If the benigner power can yield a fountain in the desert field, where weary pilgrims drink, thine are the waves that lash the rock, thine the tornado's deadly shock, where countless navies sink. Or if you bid the soil dispense, balsams to cheer the sinking sense, how few can they deliver from lingering pains or pang intense, red fever, spotted pestilence, the arrows of thy quiver. Chief in man's bosom sits thy sway, and frequent, while in words we pray, before another throne, what e'er a species form be there, the secret meaning of the prayer, is Ariman thine own. Say, hast thou feeling, sense, and form, thunder thy voice, thy garments storm, as eastern magi say, with sentient soul of hate and wrath, and wings to sweep thy deadly path, and fangs to tear thy prey. Or art thou mixed in nature's source, an ever-operating force, converting good to ill, an evil principle innate, contending with our better fate, and, oh, victorious still? Howe'er it be, dispute is vain, on all without thou holdest thy reign, nor less on all within, each mortal passion's fierce career. Love, hate, ambition, joy, and fear, thou goadest into sin. Whene'er a sunny gleam appears, to brighten up our veil of tears, thou art not distant far, mid such brief solace of our lives. Thou wettest our very banquet knives, to tools of death and war. Thus, from the moment of our birth, long as we linger on the earth, thou rulest the fate of men. Thine are the pangs of life's last hour, and, who dare answer, is thy power, dark spirit, ended then? Open bracket. The worthy and learned clergyman by whom this species of hymn has been translated desires that, for a fear of misconception, we should warn the reader to recollect that it is composed by a heathen, to whom the real causes of moral and physical evil are unknown, and to view their predominance in the system of the universe as all must view that appalling fact who have not the benefit of the Christian revelation. On our own part, we beg to add that we understand the style of the translator is more paraphrasic than can be approved by those who are acquainted with the singularly curious original. The translator seems to have despaired of rendering into English verse the flights of Oriental poetry, and, possibly like many learned and ingenious men, finding it impossible to discover the sense of the original. Close brackets. These verses may perhaps have been the not unnatural effusion of some half-enlightened philosopher, who, in the fabled deity, Arimans, saw but the prevalence of moral and physical evil. But, in the ears of Sir Kenneth the Leopard, they had a different effect, and, 
sung as they were by one who had just boasted himself a descendant of demons, sounded very like an address of worship to the archfiend himself. He weighed within himself whether, on hearing such blasphemy in the very desert where Satan had stood rebuked for demanding homage, taking an abrupt leave of the Saracen was sufficient to testify his abhorrence, or whether he was not rather constrained by his vow as a crusader to defy the infidel to combat on the spot, and leave him food for the beasts of the wilderness, when his attention was caught by an unexpected apparition. End of chapter 3, part 1